Well, good morning, everybody, again. It's great to see you. Doesn't sound this morning like too many of you were ready to get into the Christmas mode just yet. Did it feel a little bit like it was a bit too soon? It's December already. It's amazing how quickly it comes around, isn't it? It really is. Well, if you're visiting with us here today, you're one of our guests, we've been working our way through uh, the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to have a sermon today out of Matthew, and then next week out of Matthew, and then we're going to do something different over Christmas, and we're going to come back into Matthew at the beginning of the new year, and the plan right now, God willing, is that we'll get to the crucifixion story and the passion story of Jesus at Easter, which will be a wonderful way uh, to bring this uh, series to an end uh, when we get to the end of Matthew. So today we're in Matthew chapter 18. So if you've got a Bible, if you want to turn to that in your Bibles or on your, um, on your electronic devices, I'm going to put the scriptures up on the screen behind us so you can read them with me as we go. But we said right at the beginning of Matthew's gospel that Matthew is quite an incredible book. It's the first book of the New Testament. And what, one of the things that makes it incredible is who wrote it. Because Matthew was a tax collector. The tax collectors were some of the most despised people in the culture of the day. The Jewish people hated the tax collectors. And yet God uses Matthew the tax collector to write a gospel which is primarily focused at people with a Jewish background. He uses one of the most despised people of their culture to reach those very people, to reach the Jewish people and the Hebrew people. And the reason that Matthew could do that was because at a point in his life, something amazing happened. At that point in his life, he had an encounter with Jesus that opened his eyes to who Jesus really was. And in that moment of that encounter, this despised, hoarding, proud, greedy, would take anything off anybody to make their own house a little bit bigger and a little bit better, suddenly got flipped around into a person who was kind, generous, giving, wanting to share with everybody and wanting to share the good news of Jesus with the very people who he'd been ripping off. That is what a revelation of Jesus Christ can do for you. It can flip things absolutely around in a wonderful way. And Matthew writes his gospel so that whoever reads it might have the same revelation. Might meet Jesus in the same way. In a lot of our Western writing, when we write and when we teach writing at school, I was a teacher for a while, you teach people when they're writing an essay to put out at the beginning what the main point of the essay is. And then the arguments in the middle. And then you sum it up at the end with the main points at the end in a conclusion. A lot of Hebrew writing is not right like that. Hebrew writing often is the other way around. They put the main points in the center of the writing. And then they explain it on either side. So whenever you're reading Hebrew writing, ask yourself, what is in the center? Because at the center is often the most important piece. Matthew's gospel has 28 chapters, so you'd think that the center is is chapter 14. But actually, there's a whole load of chapters towards the end that have a huge amount of verses. And if you're counting verses alone, the center of Matthew's gospel is what we're going to read today out of Matthew 16. 
And when you read it, you'll understand why it's the center, because it's the very purpose for which he wrote it. He wanted everybody to have a revelation of Jesus that he had. So let's read it together out of Matthew 16. I'm just going to read a few verses this morning out of the chapter, but I'm going to refer to a number of them in the rest of the chapter and the rest of the morning. So we're going to go from verse 13 to 20 in Matthew chapter 16. Let me read it to you. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I don't know what it felt like for Matthew. That day you met him on the road. But it changed his life. And I pray, Holy Spirit... Whatever he got that day, you would give us a fresh glimpse of that this morning. Because we need you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I have a thesis for my sermon today. I have a goal of where I want to get. And the thesis is this. We really need... A living revelation of the living Lord Jesus. We really need a living revelation of the living Lord Jesus. As a church and as individuals. Revelation is like having your eyes opened. It's that aha moment when you see something that you never saw before. It's that moment when something you might have thought about in your head suddenly gets into your heart and you know you get it. That's what a revelation is. And so the first question I want to ask this morning is, what is the revelation of Jesus that we all need? Here is Jesus taking his disciples to Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi was a place at the source of the Jordan River. Underneath Mount Hermon, where the springs and the waters came down off the mountain, there were springs underneath. And where those springs met, there was a grotto. And at this grotto in Caesarea Philippi were many altars carved into the rocks for different gods. It was particularly set apart for the god Pan, the god of chance. 
from which we get the phrase, everything will pan out in time. A God who was supposed to become a man. It was named after, the area was named after Caesar, and it was named by Philip, who was one of the sons of Herod, hence Caesarea Philippi. And this is where Jesus took his disciples, looking at all the grottos of all the altars to all the different gods. And he says to his disciples, who do people say that I am? And the people had been saying lots of different things. John the Baptist had died. Some are saying this is the spirit of John the Baptist that has come into Jesus. Some other people were saying other things about who Jesus was. But the important question is not who does everybody else think that I am. The important question for every one of us, whether we know Jesus or not, is who do you say that I am? And that's what Jesus asked his disciples. And Peter, being Peter, blurts out before anybody else, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. What is he saying? That word Christ is the Greek word for Messiah. The one that everyone in Israel had been longing for for hundreds of years. That king that was going to come from heaven and bring the king of heaven, kingdom of heaven down to earth. That one that was going to sit on the throne of David and was going to rule over the kingdom, not just of Israel, but over the nations of the earth. A kingdom whose dominion was going to stretch from sea to sea and from shore to shore. They had waited and prayed and waited and prayed for hundreds of years. And when Jesus asked them, who do you say I am? Peter looked him in the face and said, you are the Messiah. You are the one whom our hearts have longed for. You are the one who has come to sit on David's throne. You are the one whose kingdom will be extended from age to age and from shore to shore. If the increase of your government and peace, there will be no end. For you will sit on David's throne, upholding it with righteousness and justice from this day forth. You are Messiah, the Son of God. That's an incredible revelation just by itself. But I missed a little word out of that revelation that Peter said. Because Peter didn't just say, you are Christ, the Son of God. He said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Why was it important that Peter emphasized that he was the living God? Everybody in Israel believed in a living God. They believed that God was alive. Hadn't he said to Moses, I am. I exist. I am the one who exists. I have been from eternity. I am now and I will be to all eternity. But Peter isn't just referring here to the fact that Jesus is the son of a God who is alive. He's saying more than that. This means a God who is on the move. A God who is living. 
An old English word that you could translate this word with would be, he's quick. He's alive. He's living. He's doing something on the face of the earth. You are Messiah, the son of a God who is on the move. The others were still waiting. But Peter saw he had already come. That is a revelation of Jesus that we need. That he is the supreme ruler over all things in heaven and earth. That he is the Messiah who sits upon David's throne. That the increase of his government and peace will be forever until he comes again. Across all the face of this earth. And that he is the son of a God who is on the move. He is moving in our generation. He moves in every generation. He moves in your life. He moves in your neighborhood. He moves where you work. He moves in places where you do not see him moving. Because many of the other people around did not see this as a movement of God yet. But Peter looked at him and said, you are a son of a living God. A God who is on the move. Who is alive today. Alive in my life. Alive in who is, what is going on around us. And that revelation, to carry that revelation in our heart, is vital for us as church and individuals. We might know that Jesus is the Messiah. We might know that he is the Son of God. Do we know that he is the Son of a God who is on the move today? Who is on the move in your life and wants to do incredible things in your life and through your life? Because that is a revelation that we need to keep in our hearts. Not just a belief of something that happened years ago, but an understanding and a seeing of what God is doing now, in this day, in this age, and a heart to embrace what he's doing and be part of what he is doing. You are the Christ, Peter said, the son of the living God. If that is the revelation that we need to have, Why do we need a a revelation like that? Why is it important to have a revelation of that, of the living God and the living Lord Jesus Christ? Two things out of what Jesus says next to Peter. First thing is this. It's the only place to stand. It's the only place to stand. Jesus says to Peter, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. For flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but this was revealed to you from my Father in heaven. And you are Peter, in Greek Petros, which is a mass of rock. That's the male form of the word for rock in Greek, Petros. You are Petros, and on this Petra, which is the feminine word in Greek for a mass of rock, I will build my church. People down the years, some churches have read that scripture and believed it meant that Jesus was going to build his church on the person of Peter. That would have been a pretty unstable rock to build on. If Jesus meant that, he would have said, you are Peter Petros with a capital P, and on this Petros, this male rock, I will build my church. But Jesus didn't say that. He said, you are Petros, and on this Petra, The feminine version. Because he was referring to something else. What was he referring to? Well many scholars believe that he's referring to the revelation of who he is. You are Peter. 
And that revelation that you've just had, if you can put your feet on that, you can stand on that. And it will stand firm throughout all ages. That's the rock that I'm going to build my church on. I'm going to build my church not on organization. I'm not going to build my church on people putting together in different places and trying to make things work. I'm going to build my church on a rock of truth, of revelation, that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God. And when you get that, you are standing on the rock on which the church will be built. That is the rock on which we can stand. Edmund Mote. Edward Mote was born in London in 1797 into an unchurched family. In fact, his family ran a pub in London. And running pubs means you work day and night. And so Edward Mote grew up on the streets of London and was, by all description, an unruly child, which probably meant he was running wild on the streets of London with nobody watching what he was doing all the way until he got to 15. And at the age of 15, he found himself listening to a preacher called John Hyatt, a local preacher. And something awoke in his heart. He had a revelation. He said later, so ignorant was I that I did not even know there was a God. My Sundays were spent on the streets of London in play. But suddenly his heart had awoken to a truth. And he would discover this truth he could stand on all the way through his life. He was a cabinet maker by trade. One day when he was on his way to make his cabinets, a tune started to go in his head and words started to come to him. And so he began to write them down. He wrote the chorus to start with. He went home that night and he wrote the rest of the song out on that night and on the following Sunday. And he finished four stanzas of the song on the Sunday. The following Sunday after that, he went to visit a friend of his from the church whose wife was dying. And as they sat in the room together, the friend said, we're going to read some scriptures and we're going to pray. And they read some scriptures and they prayed. And then Edward said, can I sing you a song? A song that I just wrote this last week. And they said, yes, fine. And so over the dying woman in this house, Edward Mote sang for the first time a song that has become famous throughout Christendom. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. His oath, his covenant, his blood support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds 
within the veil. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. And then I'm sure with a special view to the lady that was lying on the couch in front of him. On the last day, when he shall come with trumpet sound. Oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before his throne. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. A cabinet maker who had grown up on the streets as an atheist. What had changed in his life? He had had a revelation of who Jesus Christ really is. And it was going to stand him through, the st- through all that went through life. It was going to be a standing place for his friends who were facing death. It's a standing place for you and I still today. And it is the only place that the church of the living God can stand. Is on a revelation of who Jesus Christ really is. First of all, it is the only place to stand. Secondly, it is the key to our power and authority. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, he revealed this to you. And you are Peter. And on this rock of that revelation that you've just had, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. What you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. What you loose on earth will be loosed on heaven, in heaven. I was having my own little encounter with Jesus on Wednesday. My little bit of revelation the Lord gave me as we were praying together in the prayer furnace. Will was leading us in what a wonderful name. There's revelation in those songs when the Holy Spirit connects those words to your heart. And as I was on my knees in the prayer furnace, just enjoying the presence of God and, and seeing Jesus afresh, another hymn came to my mind. It comes from another great hymn writer, Charles Wesley. Charles Wesley one night was preaching on the streets of Cornwall in the south of England. And there was a man who was drunk who was opposing him vehemently. And if you've ever done street preaching and you've got someone who's drunk in your face opposing you, it's not always easy to preach. I had somebody once when I was preaching downtown on the streets on Portage there, he grabbed my neck when I started to speak about Jesus and tried to throttle me while I was preaching. Uh, Somebody under the influence of alcohol and probably the influence of a few other things as well. And uh, didn't want to hear the gospel being preached. Well, that was what was happening to Charles Wesley. And as that was happening, something rose up in Charles Wesley. And he said to the man, who is this that pleads for the devil? As you did in those days when you were preaching. And he rebuked the man in the name of Jesus. And that night as he was lying on his bed and thinking about the power that was in that name to quieten whatever was going on in that man at that moment, whether demonically or through the influence of the alcohol or whatever else, he started to write another hymn. Let me read you the words of that hymn. 
Jesus, the name high over all, in hell or earth or sky. Angels and men before it fall, and devils fear and fly. Jesus, the name to sinners dear, the name to sinners given, it scatters all their guilty fears. It brings them peace of heaven. Jesus, the prisoner's fetters breaks and bruises Satan's head. Power into strengthless souls he speaks and life into the dead. I love this next verse. Oh, that the world might taste and see the riches of his grace. The arms of love that compass me would all the world embrace. Him as my righteousness I show, his saving truth proclaim. Tis all my business here below to cry, behold the Lamb. Happy if with my latest breath I may but gasp his name. Preach him to all and cry in death, behold, behold the Lamb. A church that has a revelation of the living Lord Jesus is a church that grows in an understanding of the authority and power that Jesus has given them. So that not even the most dark and strong of spiritual forces, even Hades, can stand against them. The church that has a living revelation of the living Lord Jesus is a church that knows and uses the keys that Jesus has given them. That bind up those powers of darkness, unlock and loose the vast treasures of the kingdom of heaven into a waiting world. There are so many treasures in the kingdom that are yet to be unlocked. And Jesus has given us the keys. And those keys are found in the revelation of who Jesus is. And when we discover those keys, he gives us the opportunity to enter places in the spirit that we have never been before. And when we enter those places, we discover there are riches in there. Not just for ourselves, but for many, many others beside us. One such key, Jesus said, was given to the lawyers of the day. You can read it in Luke chapter 10. He said, you have the key of knowledge. You had the law. You could open it up. You could help people to understand what the scriptures are all about. But Jesus says, woe to you lawyers, because you had the key of knowledge. But you wouldn't open it up and go in, and you wouldn't let anybody else go in either. Jesus has given us as a church some incredible keys. They're keys to change things. They're keys to understand things. They're keys to unlock things. There's keys to power that we do not know. He said even the gates of hell would not prevail. The gates of Hades literally would not prevail. It will not prevail because you have the keys. Can that even be true? Well, let me tell you what happened in Acts chapter 9. Tabitha. A lady who sewed and knitted and blessed the saints died suddenly. She'd passed away. She'd gone. They washed the body. They took the body upstairs. They laid it out. It was gone. And people were gathered around her body. And they were praying and weeping and whatever. Showing off the garments that she had made. And they sent for Peter because he wasn't very far away. 
I don't know how long it took for Peter to get there, but this body's been washed and laid out upstairs and it's been there a while. Peter comes. And they're showing him all the stuff. Isn't this sad that, that this person's died? But Peter has seen Jesus. He knows that he's the Christ, the son of the living God. And he puts everybody out the room. And he gets down beside Tabitha's bed. And he prays. And you and I don't know what he prays. But this is what happens after he prays. He sits up and he looks at Tabitha and he says, Tabitha, rise up. And she rose up. Physically, they were in that room. But spiritually, she was already gone. What happened here? Jesus said, I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. What you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And Peter got down beside that bed and I don't know how he did, did it and what he did. But somewhere along the line, he accessed the key that Jesus had given him in prayer. And in the spirit, he went to that ancient door of death. And he put the key in the lock. And he turned the key. And he threw the door open. And he said, Tabitha, rise up. And instantly she sat up in her bed. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. I don't think as a church we understand what Jesus has given us. Really. I think we could take an eternity to understand. But we need to have a living, a living revelation of who Jesus is. Because we need to be accessing those keys in new ways. Finding what God is doing. Seeing what the living God is about. Getting into those places with Jesus of seeing him for who he really is and saying, Jesus, what do you want to do in this situation? How do you want to change the situation? What do you want to give me as keys to help change this situation? I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. We need a revelation of Jesus Christ, the living Lord Jesus, because we need a place to stand. And because this is where our power and authority comes from. So Peter, why do you say in closing you need a living revelation of the Lord Jesus? Why living? My thesis is this. Our revelation of Jesus needs to be kept alive. Because it can die. It can go dim. It can be dulled. And it can, be, it can die altogether. Let me give you the context of the whole of the rest of the chapter. Jesus starts off the chapter with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees come to Jesus and they say, if you read in verse 1, give us a sign. We want to see a sign. If you are really who you say you are, show us a sign. Well, you might think that's not unreasonable. Except for the fact these folks asked for a sign four chapters ago. In chapter 12, they asked for a sign. And since they asked for a sign four chapters ago, Jesus had said, has fed 5,000 men, plus women and children, with a few loaves and fish. He's done some incredible miracles. He's then fed 4,000 men, plus women and children, with a few loaves and fish. 
He's walked on water. And they're still asking for a sign. And at the end of the discourse, Jesus says to his disciples, Beware the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Yeast is something that can get into dough and it works its way all the way through the dough until it changes the makeup of the dough. And Jesus says, listen, those Pharisees and Sadducees, what goes on in their heart, that can get into your heart. And when it gets into your heart, it can begin to work its way all the way through the dough of your heart until your heart is dull, until your heart is dim. Until you could be standing watching the Son of God do amazing things right in front of your eyes. And even though you have prayed for Messiah to come since the moment you were born. And you have studied him in the scriptures. And you've looked for his coming. You do not see him even when he's standing right in front of you. God is on the move. And you are not alive to it. Beware the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And folks, it can happen to us all. The disciples, this is the next piece that happens. The disciples get into a boat, follow it through in the chapter. And they're they're halfway across the sea and one of them suddenly realizes, we didn't bring any bread. And they start to panic because they don't have enough bread. Think about it. Jesus has just fed 4,000 people with a few loaves and fish. And they're panicking in the boat because they don't have enough bread. What is that? Jesus says to them, beware the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they're thinking, he's angry with us because we don't have enough bread. How dull can you get? But don't you find that's easy in your own life? That God can do a miracle and a wonder on Tuesday and something bad happens to you on Wednesday and you forget all about what he did the day before. Isn't it easy? Do you know what that is? That's the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. That's a growing unbelief. Our hearts, you know, are full of unbelief by themselves without the revelation of God. Full of unbelief. They're hard towards God. They're resistant towards God. They're rebellious towards God. And the tendency to go back there is so strong in us that we can have these incredible miracles and we can lose it all in a moment. It can happen to anybody. Peter's had this incredible revelation of Jesus. You are the Christ, the Son of the Lord. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, because this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood. This came to you from heaven. And because he's got this great revelation and Jesus is able to explain all this to him, he then goes on to start talking about what's going to happen. God that is alive is going to do some things. He's going to be, I'm going to be taken by the chief priests and, and the rulers and I'm going, to be, uh, I'm going to be suffer and I'm going to die. And on the third day, then Peter, Peter's hearing all this and thinking, no. No, no, that's not, what, that's not what you're going to be. That's not what the Messiah is supposed to do. And so he rebukes Jesus. Right after he's had this great revelation. And Jesus turns around to him and says, get behind me, Satan. And listen to what he says. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. He just had the things of God in his mind. Where did they go? They left. Exit stage left. First sign of trouble. First sign of something going wrong. First sign that something's up. Woof! Out goes the revelation. Can happen to us all, can't it? It easily happens to us all. That's why, folks, I think what Matthew is saying to us here is, 
We need a living and alive revelation. Today, this moment of the living Lord Jesus. If I had a revelation a week ago that I'm still living in today, great. But if I had a revelation a week ago and I've lost it in the preceding moments that have gone on in my life, I need another revelation of the living Lord Jesus today. I need it. Because if I don't have it, I don't have the right place to stand when the troubles start. And if I don't have it, I don't have the right tools to access what I need to access in the name of Jesus and to be able to bring people into the things of the kingdom and loose the things of the kingdom onto the earth. I don't have them. Because I've lost the living revelation of who Jesus really is. You know the lovely thing that Jesus does to Peter. Get behind me, Satan. <laughs> Goodness sakes. I, I think I'd just crawl into a hole and die. I was like, that's it, I'm done. I've, I've, I thought I was great. I crashed into a horrible pit. And that's easy happens too, isn't it? Just leave me alone. Don't, don't touch me. I, I, you know, I'll come out next Christmas or whatever it is. Do you know what Jesus does with him? This is the living Lord Jesus. The next thing Jesus does to Peter. Listen to it. Let me read it. After six days. It took six days. But after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother. And he led them up the high mountain by themselves. What happened up the high mountain? Jesus revealed himself again. Isn't he gracious? Isn't he kind? There's a door standing open in heaven. Come up. Come up here. He says to John. John's just had this incredible revelation of Jesus. He's sitting on the Isle of Patmos, miles away from, from the family of churches that he's given himself to. And he's been cut off from them. In those days, you couldn't do text to find out how they're doing. And he hears a voice, first of all, that's behind him. It turns him around. And he sees the Lord of the church, Jesus Christ, standing there. And Jesus shows him what's going on in the church. And some of it's pretty depressing. As a pastor, you'd be pretty depressed. The last one, they're so lukewarm, I'm just about to spit them out of my mouth. Now you're depressed. And you can't get in a boat and go back and sort those people out. What's he going to do when he's feeling that depressed? Jesus says to him, look up here. He hears another voice. And this time it's not from behind making him look around at the things of the earth. It's a voice that comes from him from above. It's the same voice. But it causes him now to look upwards. And I looked up and I saw a door standing open in heaven. And a voice said to me, come up here. When was the last time you went up the mountain to be with Jesus? We need a living revelation of the living Lord Jesus regularly. And Jesus is gracious to give us one. 
There's many ways you can do that. You can pray, seek the Lord, ask the Lord to open your eyes, give you eyes self to see. You can go to the scriptures and search the scriptures and say, Lord, would you help me to see here what you're doing? You can look around at what God's doing in the world. Jesus is alive. There are things happening. Jesus, show me what you're doing in the world. What's happening? How can I get involved in what you are doing by your Holy Spirit? There are many different ways that we can have revelation. You hear one of mine is to find it in poetry. I find it in the, in the songs of the saints. Find my often revelation. We're going to finish this morning by taking communion together. Because this is a place where we can renew our revelation of who Jesus really is. And as Greg and the folks come to set the communion tables up, Jesus says to the folks who asked him for a sign, he said this, I'm only going to give you one sign. To the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He said, I'm going to give you the sign of Jonah. What was the sign of Jonah? Well, the sign of Jonah, if you know the story of Jonah the prophet, He was out in a boat in a stormy, raging, tempestuous sea. It was raging and it was tempestuous because God was angry with Jonah because Jonah was sinning against God. And that tempest was not just going to drown Jonah, it was going to drown everybody in the boat. And they're talking amongst themselves, why is this happening? And all the other people are from different nations, worshipping different gods, and they're praying to their gods, and it's not changing anything. And they're saying, what's going on? And finally, Jonah fesses up, and he says, listen, it's my fault. I'm running away from God. I'm not where I should be with God, and God's angry with me. And you're all getting the, 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 the backlash of that. Take me and throw me into the storm. And if you throw me into the storm of God's anger... It will be stilled. And the main sign of Jonah is this, that, Jesus went, that Jonah went down into the water and he was picked up by the grace of God in the belly of a fish and he was there for three days. But he was not dead. And he was released back to life. And Jesus is talking about the fact that one day he's going to be taken to the cross. And at the cross he's going to die a death for you and for me. He's going to take our punishment. But on the third day, after being laid down into a tomb, he's going to raise from the dead. And that is the sign of Jonah. But let me take it a little deeper for you. Jonah was in a boat in a tempestuous sea of all the anger and the wrath of God against him for his sin. Do you know God is angry against sin? And it's a tempestuous anger. You do not want to fall into the hands of the living God without standing on the rock of the revelation of who Jesus really is. And how can we be safe from the storm of the anger of God? We have Jesus in the boat. And Jesus says to us, if you will take me and throw me into the storm of that anger, that anger will be stilled. And we crucified Jesus on a cross. We didn't know what we were doing. But he knew what he was doing. And he threw himself into the giant waves of the anger of Almighty God. And he took on himself all the anger of God that you and I deserve. And the waters were still. And for every one of us who calls on the name of the Lord, we are saved. From that anger. We never have to face it again. That's what this is about today. This is about the living Lord Jesus dying for you 
and for me. This is the sign of Jonah. And I'm going to pray as we take these elements this morning that God will open our eyes afresh. That he will always keep in our hearts a fire. A fire of love burning for who Jesus really is. And what he's about on the earth. And he keeps our eyes open to see what he's doing. To see what's happening around. So that we can get involved with him in what he is doing. So why don't you come? Just pick up the communion elements from around the room. Bring them back to your seat. elements this morning how many of you are saying yeah Pete you know what I need a fresh revelation of who Jesus Christ is this morning put your hand up my hands are up too let me pray an apostolic prayer for you this morning as we take these elements for this reason because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus And we have your faithful people and your love towards all the saints. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering in my prayers. And what am I praying? That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom. And he may give you the spirit of revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you that you may know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, that you will know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all Jesus we want to see you we want to see you Lord every day we want to see you we want to see you and see you for who you really are and see ourselves in you for who we really are in you. Open our eyes afresh, Holy Spirit. Open our eyes afresh in Jesus' name.
Let's remember Jesus as we take the body together, as we take the crack and remember him. As we do this, Elisa's just going to start leading us in worship.